transition passage. Um, I've titled the message today because I think there's some consequential realities that are here in this moment in Paul's journey. Paul is at the end of his second missionary journey, and we're going to learn a little bit about pre-Christian Rome, the Roman Empire, before Christianity had gained a foothold in it. Christianity was this foreign thing in pre-Christian Rome. But you and I are living in what I'm going to explain to us today is post-Christian America. And I think it's important that we recognize some things and we see the biblical insights that are here as we look at Paul's life. Just put us back in our map here. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And so we're going to be reading today at the, toward the end of his journey. And I hope this, I hope this is helpful. I need, I need memory hooks. So this is, a, this is kind of Paul's second missionary journey. So remember, he starts here in Antioch. In Acts chapter 15, there's the disagreement with Paul and Barnabas, and they go their own way. And this is where he goes. He goes here into the Galatian region first and eventually over here to the coast. Then he's going to make his way into Europe. This is uh, northern Greece. So he's into Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea. And then he makes his way down the coast, Athens, and then Corinth, which is where we're going to pick him up today. But in a very quick time frame, this is where if you don't read the Bible carefully, you think it just kind of progresses along at the same pace. Um, In just a few verses, we're going to go from right here in Corinth across to Ephesus on another sea journey down here to Caesarea and then back up to Antioch. And then we're going to prepare after that. His third missionary journey is about to be upon us. And so you'll recognize some of the names of these cities. Matter of fact, I mentioned this the other day. Go back and do this because after you've read a little bit and you've got a little bit more of Paul's background and you go back and read his letters. Like I mentioned to you that when Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half, right after he arrived, within the first year, he wrote back to the church in Thessalonica. And that's where we get the letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But it's within less than a year. People think maybe three, four, five, six months after Paul had been in Corinth, he's writing back to Thessalonica. So he had been there months earlier, primarily a Gentile group of believers in Thessalonica. Go back and read 1 Thessalonians and see what does the Apostle Paul have to say to people that are a very new set of converts who come from a Roman background, primarily what we're going to see today, and they're taking their first steps into Christianity. What would he talk to them about? Right? Don't just read 1 Thessalonians like it's just one of the letters all over the place. That's what Paul was doing. He was writing back right after he had left them and instructing them in some things that he thought were very, very important. So today let's look... As we transition, come to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He's in Corinth. Verse 11 tells us that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, as we read this next section, we're going to get into some familiar ground. Paul's about to get opposed, right? He's awakened the giants of the land to come oppose him. And then he's going to go off again on his missionary journey. That's what we're going to look at today. Verse 12 says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So Paul is again going to court. He's being brought before the Roman officials. The proconsul was a Roman official overseeing the state of Achaia. And Paul's about to have to face him in court. Verse 13, the Jews were saying, this man 
is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, well, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, right? The Romans didn't have a great deal of appetite for dealing with Jewish squabbles. So it's like, hey, don't bring this before me. I don't want to bother with it, all right? You settle this kind of stuff yourself. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this, right? So the Jews want to oppose Paul. They take him to court, probably led by Sosthenes, who was the leader of the Jewish group that was there. They're going to use the Roman court system to oppose Christianity. But when they go to do it, Gallio's got no ear to hear their case. And so they turn around and beat up the, the Jewish leader who tried to get this thing done. And then we find out, verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and, and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Well, Lord, again, these are words that you have preserved, inspired, or they were written down for our benefit. So, Lord, they, they may sound like just a brief description of a transitional moment, but, Lord, these, these words have consequences for our lives today. So give us ears to hear, and again, Lord, lives that need this word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, remember, Paul shows up in Corinth, begins to preach the gospel, and a familiar pattern breaks out. Now, if you've been studying the storyline and traveling with Paul here, this is not new. He is stepping into Corinth and begins to preach the gospel, and the same response that he has received all over the place happens. He introduces the gospel, and the culture into which he speaks rises up and attacks it. It's almost like the culture's immune system. You know how your immune system operates? Something foreign gets into your physical being. And your body identifies it as a foreign element, and it attacks that foreign element, right? All the white blood cells come flying to the scene there. You're going to take this thing out. Well, culturally, that's what's been happening. Everywhere the gospel comes to the culture, the culture perceives it as foreign and attacks it, right? So when we were in Jerusalem, the culture attacked Christianity, right? The Jewish culture turns on Jesus Christ, who claims to be the Messiah, attacks him, gets the Romans to turn around and crucify him. And then the church begins, and they preach the gospel in Jerusalem, and they attack the gospel again. Stephen is stoned. He's murdered. It's beginning to get ugly. There's a dispersion, and off into the world goes the gospel. 
And Paul begins to take the gospel. His first missionary journey, he lands in Galatia, Lystra, and Derb, and Iconium. And remember, he's, he's stoned and left for dead there. Right? Paul eventually is going to go back in his second missionary journey. He's going to head into Europe. When he lands in these locations, he gets to Philippi. He preaches the gospel. The culture rises up against him. He's beaten with rods, thrown in jail. He moves down the coast to Athens. Little different set of people in Athens. Preaches the gospel to them. They respond interestingly because they actually labeled this thing in a way in which everybody else has been labeling it. They just haven't been using words. Remember they said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Whatever it is that the gospel sounded like in the ears of the culture, it sounded foreign. This is weird. This is bizarre. These ideas are, are bizarre ideas. They called it, you bring some strange things to our ears. And Athens belittled and made little of the gospel in this Greek culture. And then Paul moves to Corinth and the exact same situation breaks out yet again. He preaches the gospel. The culture turns and attacks the gospel presentation. And Paul is brought before Roman officials yet again. Right, so here's, here's our, our reality as we learn about this, this culture, this Roman Empire culture. In the Roman Empire, Christianity was considered a foreign invader that was unwelcomed, troublesome, and it created common ground of opposition among traditional religionists, polytheists, and heathens. And that's interesting because that group didn't usually get along. The Jews were not great friends with the Romans, right? The Jews were monotheists. They believed in the God of creation, the God of the Old Testament. But the Romans were polytheists. They believed in a God behind every bush. Everything had some kind of a spirit and a God associated with it. But these guys could get along when it came to opposing Christianity. Isn't it interesting that you can find all kinds of folks who never have anything to do with each other until the opportunity comes to oppose Christianity? And then they will rally together. Remember, these, the, the Roman Empire is a, is a horrible place to live as a Jew. You're a social outcast. You're not welcomed. You're being dominated, heavily taxed, and persecuted for your beliefs. But yet it's interesting that when the Jews were ready to oppose the Messiah, they partnered with the Romans to do it. Right? If the Jews had simply opposed the Messiah, you and I wouldn't have crosses hanging on our buildings. We'd have stones up on the wall. That's how the Jews took care of troublemakers. They stoned people to death. But we have crosses because of the partnership between a monotheistic Israel and a pantheistic, polytheistic Rome who murdered their people by crosses. And the reason why we have a cross that reveals Christianity is because of this strange partnership between traditional religion and polytheistic Rome. And so as you, as you walk through this, these journeys and we continue through the book of Acts, everywhere you see, whether you are a traditional religionist or you are a polytheistic pagan heathen Roman, uh, you're going to attack Christianity. Welcome to pre-Christian Roman Empire. Right? I want to point something out interesting to us because really, it is very interesting to study the, the Roman world. They were a very advanced society. Uh, there was a lot that they did that was well ahead of what many other folks were doing. Their organization, their, their thoughts, and how they pursued things. 
Uh, in your outline there, I think I put a quote from PBS at a special, the Roman Empire in the first century. This is an interesting insight into the religion of the Roman Empire. The religion of ancient Rome dated back many centuries, and over time, it grew increasingly diverse. A different, as different cultures settled in what would later become Italy, each brought their own gods and forms of worship. This made the religion of ancient Rome polytheistic in that they worshipped many gods. They also worshipped spirits. Let me, let me just say this about some, because this has, a, I think, an important element of responsibility for being a Christian at any moment in history. You, you and I operate in a franchise, if you will, called Christianity. It, it was here before us. It will be here after us. And you and I are, are simply stewards of something that we don't have the rights to mess with the original recipe. Now, that's important because what you see in Rome, the Roman Empire was an advancing empire. It was taking over sets of people after sets of people after sets of people. And every time it encountered a set of people, it encountered a set of religious ideas. Rome had no problem in just swallowing up their ideas and incorporating their ideas into what they believed. So within the Roman world was a a huge variety of beliefs about how to do life and who is God and what are the spiritual powers that are at work around us. That's what's in man. The the same thing can be true of Christianity today, that that we can be part of something that as as it broadens and as it adds people, it adds ideas to Christianity. It welcomes the religious ideas and practices of others into Christianity. And it begins to change the face and the meaning of Christianity. Now, you won't notice it much, although in our lifetime, the information age is making things change very quickly. But typically, you wouldn't notice this for 50 years, 100 years. In history, sometimes 1,000 years years, that ideas were being incorporated into what was said to be Christianity, that when that idea stays in place and matures over time, it's going to become a shaping influence in what Christianity will be. Listen, you and I have a responsibility to make sure that the original recipe of the gospel is the same recipe that when Jesus comes back, it's still exactly the untampered truth that he delivered to us. Listen, that's easier said than done. Because many of us who have come into the church, we came in with ideas. And I can remember bumping into the ideas that were being presented to me as, as biblical Christianity. And, and they were a little bit offensive because I thought my ideas were religiously right. And yet you're challenging me and you're saying that they're not right. All right? And I'm about to do that to you right now. So <laughs> get ready. Uh, Roman Empire, they, they believed in spirits, rivers, trees, fields, and buildings. Each had their own spirit or numen. Worshiping more than one numen or numina was a, a, a part of early Roman culture. In, your, in households, there were multiple spirits. Every Roman household also had its own protective spirits. For instance, Vesta was the goddess of the fireplace. Even food cupboards had their own spirits. Families also had a protective spirit called a lar. Each family had a larium or shrine to this spirit, often kept in the atrium or courtyard. 
the head of the family was responsible for making regular sacrifices to honor the family's spirit and make sure that it continued to watch over them. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, Gladiator is, is, uh, I, I love to see the movie because it educates me a little bit and I think fairly accurately about the Roman Empire and what it was like to live in the first century, although it's, I think it's a second century movie. But what you see there, if, you, if you've seen the movie, the guy who plays Gladiator, he's got a little set of figurines that he keeps in a little bag in his pocket. And the guy regularly prayed. As a matter of fact, as I watch his life, he seemed to regularly pray more than some Christians I know. He's a heathen. He's a Roman pagan. But he prayed for his family. And he'd set out little figurines and he'd set up a little altar. And, and whether he was in Germania conquering lands as a, a, a soldier and a general in the Roman army, or he was a slave later in the movie, he made time to pray for his family. And he believed in these spirits that watched over his family. Now, on the one hand, I want to say we don't have something like that in America. But we do have something like that, actually. We have a couple things like that. You know, America's idols, they're, they're not spirits with the behind-the-scenes names like we see in, in Roman world. But they very much are things that people look to to deliver them. Right? Do we have anything like that in our culture? We've got lots of them. And many of us awake in the morning to bring an offering to those things. We, we worry about stuff and we, we think, you know, the God of materialism, the God of money, the spirit of those things will somehow deliver us and make things good for us. If, if we'll just offer to it our time and our energy and our careers, et cetera, et cetera. And those things can become rescuing idols in our lives. But if you grew up in New Orleans, you've been around something much more similar to this. See, I grew up here, grew up Roman Catholic. I'm using the word Roman carefully. And... If you grew up Roman Catholic, if you didn't grow up Roman Catholic, I'm going to educate you on something that you have been confused about forever. If you did grow up Roman Catholic, you remember what it was to have patron saints in your life. Right? Here's what a patron saint is, according to AmericanCatholic.org. There were certain Catholic saints are associated with certain life situations. These patron saints intercede to God for us. We can take our special needs to them. And no, they will listen to our prayers and pray to God with us. And there is a, quite a list of patron saints that exist. Right? Here, this be educational for some. St. Matthew is the patron saint of accounting and banking and finance, etc. St. Bernardine of Siena is the patron saint of advertising. So if you've been involved in advertising, that would be something to know. St. Francis of Assisi is the patron saint of animals. St. Raymond of Penafort, the patron saint of attorneys. See, now some of y'all didn't know that there even could be such a thing for attorneys, right? <clears throat> All right, there are 23 life situations described and patron saints assigned to them just for the letter A. Did you notice I didn't get out of the letter A? 23 patron saints assigned to life situations that all begin with the letter A. And then you move to the letter B. And then you move to the letter C. And there's a patron saint that is available for all kinds of life situations. Where do you get this idea from? Right, now, remember what I said earlier. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility 
to not mess with the original recipe. You have a responsibility to find in your life Christianity, pick it up like a baton, run with it as long as the Lord gives you grace to be in this world and pass it along to everyone that you come in contact with, untampered. Don't add to it, don't take away from it. Someone picked up Christianity and thought it'd be a good idea, given all the varieties of situations in life that we can get ourselves into, all the needs that we might have, that we could appeal to and pray to and ask for help from some entity. But that entity wasn't Jesus Christ, the mediator, who stands between God and men. It was patron saints. Now, if you have read your Bible... You are hard-pressed. And I began to read my Bible as a teenager. I'd never read the Bible before, but I had grown up believing in patron saints. When I began to read my Bible as a teenager, I began to not find things in the Bible. And from cover to cover, you will not find anything called a patron saint that you are to go to in prayer that he will take up a personal situation in your life that is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. Where would such an idea have come from? Could it have come from the Roman Empire? As Catholicism was the Roman Catholic Church, very much influenced by the Roman Empire and the way in which things were done and the belief systems that were there in place, where you had personal deities and spirits that could aid you in all kinds of life situations. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be helpful that if in Christianity we could have something like that? It may have been a sincere move on behalf of somebody who first wrote that idea down and passed it along to others. The problem is it messes with the original recipe. And you and I don't have permission to do that ever because Christianity is going to be here when you and I are gone. And, and some of you know this. There are some people that you know who are more devoted to praying to a patron saint than to relating to Christ, the mediator who stands between them and God, the only mediator between them and God. See, ideas have consequences. So we want to be careful. We want to learn a little bit here as we read through scriptures. Let me, let me take us back into this culture. Remember, this culture is attacking Christianity. That's the nature of this culture. The Roman Empire was a culture of extreme division. Uh, discrimination was rampant in this culture. You had a sort of a ruling class. If you were a Roman citizen, you were distinct from everybody else. It wasn't about race. It was about whether you were a Roman citizen. Where you were born, who your relatives were, was much more important than racial issues. Now, the race may have come in because of who you were related to. But 5% of the population was pretty well off. Roman citizenry, opportunist. 1.5% of the population owned almost 50% of the slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, I, wanna, I want you to realize there are problems in this culture. There are enormous humanitarian, need-oriented problems in this culture. If you visited Italy during the first century, 35 to 40% of the population in Italy were slaves. This wasn't something you were reading about historically, something far away. The odds are... 
almost every other person you bumped into in Rome belonged to somebody else. The description of a slave in the Roman Empire was that they were living property, but property nonetheless. That's how they were described. And and slavery was quite different than it was as we understood colonial slavery in America. But it was slavery nonetheless. You and I don't live in a culture that knows much about that. You and I have entertainment problems in our culture. We look at our culture, the way, what it embraces, what it applauds, what it sets before us on movie screens. You had entertainment issues in the Roman Empire. For entertainment, gladiators were a form of entertainment. Gladiators sometimes just fought, but quite often fought to the death. They piled into coliseums in order to watch one man kill another man brutally. And it was a form of entertainment. It's what they found interesting to go and observe. Immorality, sexual immorality was commonplace throughout the Roman Empire. Adultery didn't sound anything like what you and I understand adultery to me. Adultery was not about whether or not this man was unfaithful to that woman. Adultery is about who he was unfaithful with. Because it was normal, ladies, it was normal for you to be married to a man who was regularly sleeping with prostitutes and slaves. He married you to have children. But the culture provided plenty of opportunities for self-gratification. And it wasn't adultery. It was only adultery if he slept with somebody who was maybe your same social class, your same status in this world, or higher. Then it was adultery. This, This is the Roman Empire. This polytheistic Roman Empire based in self-pleasure and entertainment and the pursuit of capital expansion. This thing was a financial uh, mega house. Uh, Throughout the world, the Roman Empire was something. And into the Roman Empire comes this little squeaky voice from a guy named Paul. And he's presenting something called Christianity. And it sounds bizarre. How many gods do you have, Paul? One. <laughs> We've got dozens. I got help coming from all over the place. You got, you got one? Well, tell me about him. Well, he was a, he was a carpenter from Nazareth. <laughs> a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Really? Well, I'm a Roman citizen. This is impressive so far. Uh, tell me a story. Well, he had a lot of followers. Did some amazing miracles. Um, in Jerusalem, he was, he was rung up on charges by the Jews and, and the Romans crucified him on a cross. What, what did you just say? Your, your hero was crucified on a cross? Right, this, is, this is the height of shame in the Roman Empire. You hung people on crosses beside the roads to shame them publicly when they died. That's why they died slowly and people walked past them. Your hero... Your main man died on a cross. This is good. Hey, hey, Paul, come here. Come tell this to this guy over here. This is too much. You understand how foreign this sounds to this culture? This sounds crazy. This sounds bizarre. It makes you wonder how on earth it ever got a hearing. 
How did it ever become the religion that turned the world upside down? Because you know, not only do you have opposition from the people who were polytheists, but the monotheists didn't believe in this either. They rejected this Messiah from Nazareth as well. You got nobody who wants to hear this story. Foreign, unwelcomed, and illegal. Christianity was illegal. This is why the Jews could always pull the trump card on it. And if they couldn't run it out of town, they could appeal to the legal system. We can bring you before the proconsul. Because you're, you're illegal as far as we're concerned, right? I think I put some of these passages in your outline. You just travel through Acts. Acts chapter 6. Speaking of Stephen, this man never ceases to speak against the holy place and the law. He's speaking against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. In Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, when they had brought them to the magistrates, right? What you're saying is a matter of legal issue here. We're going to bring you before the magistrates. They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Acts 17, verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. You can take Christians to court because of what they believe. You can take Christians to court. They were shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. They've come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And then in Acts chapter 18, our passage today, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. The law in the Roman Empire had set up acceptable religion and unacceptable religion. The government was telling you what religious beliefs were okay. It was okay for you to be a Jew. You could believe in monotheism. They thought you were ridiculous, but you were tolerated in the Roman Empire. It was not okay for you to believe in Christianity. Christianity was illegal in this culture. All right, so let me summarize what we've just visited in this Roman Empire for a moment. In the pre-Christian Roman Empire, Christianity was a foreign religion, a strange morality, and a violation of laws. Can you hold on to those three thoughts just for a second? It was a foreign religion, a strange morality, and a violation of laws. Now let's talk about post-Christian America. Because if you're paying attention, those words are beginning to describe the world that we live in more and more, and more. In our lifetime, there is an incredible shift taking place in our country. It's happening in the West. It's already happened in Europe. It's done. It's happening in America. The country that you have grown up in is becoming a post-Christian country, characterized by different values, different morals. Now, If you pay attention to the news and you're looking for this stuff, I'm not going to share anything really new with you today. But if if you're not, this will be educational. This was Easter morning. ABC News program this week had Franklin Graham, Russell Moore, Ralph Reed on the program. 
This is what Martha Raddatz said as she opened the segment. She said, Easter, a fitting time to talk about religion and faith as Christians flock to churches, but, but maybe not as many this year. Let me read you these numbers from Gallup. Attendance is down across the country. In 1992, 70% of respondents said they were a member of a church or synagogue. In 2013, that number has dropped to 59%. She turns to the Reverend Graham and says, Reverend, what is happening? This was a program about how Christianity is losing its influence in America. And uh, quite honestly, except for Ralph Reed who represents a bit of a moral majority type position. The other guys were, t- were very quick to say, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's happening in this country. And they're not alone. Some other influential guys, Al Mohler, around Easter in 2009, was quoted in Newsweek magazine saying, a remarkable culture shift has taken place around us, Mohler wrote. The most basic contours of American culture have been radically altered. The so-called Judeo-Christian consensus of the last millennium has given way to a postmodern, post-Christian, post-Western cultural crisis, which threatens the very heart of our culture. Clearly, there is a new narrative, a post-Christian narrative that is animating large portions of this society. He's not alone. Everywhere, folks are talking about this. Pew Research said 82% of U.S. evangelical leaders say evangelicals are losing influence in the United States. Jeffrey McDonald, in an article in the Winston-Salem Journal, said, booming megachurches might grab headlines, but the bigger story of American congregation is one of accelerating decline, according to David Olson, director of American Church Research Project. Based on data collected from more than 200,000 churches, he projects that by 2050, Only 10% of Americans will be in church on any given Sunday. Now that sounds crazy, but do you have any idea how many are in church this morning? Probably not, right? I mean, most of us don't study these kind of stats. Well, Gallup would claim that somewhere around 20%. So that's not very impressive, is it? The 10% number would be welcome news if you were standing in England today. They would love it if 10% of the population would show up for church. Post-Christian Europe has long ago abandoned pursuing church. Worship Facilities Magazine had an article. said the, the evidence is mounting. Young adults are leaving the church, and the United States is quickly becoming a post-Christian culture. David Wells, who's a theologian and cultural analyst, says, like the European nations, we are almost, or we are also, post-Christian. While faith is growing in Africa, South America, and Asia, it's receding, even disappearing in the West. And don't, don't become an American who defines God by, you know, your global ideas about God begin in California and run all the way to North Carolina. God's at work all over this world. There are incredible stories of revivals and people being saved and and lives being turned upside down and cultures being redefined by Christianity. South America, Africa, and Asia is experiencing a move of God that is not being experienced in this country. This is the culture that you and I live in 
a post-Christian culture. If this is true, is it necessarily a bad thing? I want to raise two things the rest of this message. One, Christianity's aim is not a moral majority. If you watch too much news program, you might not catch that. Christianity's aim is not a moral majority. Second, this may be a deliverance from an old nominal Christianity to a new normal Christianity. Right, what we see in the first century is normal Christianity. It is Christianity flourishing, living, and doing what it does in a pre-Christian Roman Empire. I think it can do it in a post-Christian American one. First, Christianity's aim is not a moral majority. Right in your outline, I wrote down, there's been for many decades the presence of moral behaviors that have been shaped and influenced and even defined by the Bible. Right? You and I, opposite to what is happening in the Roman Empire in the first century, Christianity is being introduced into a hostile culture. Our culture is moving away from Christianity. Our culture is abandoning Christianity. It's already been here. There's, there's still relics everywhere. There's still evidence that there was something called Christianity all over the place here. Not so in the first century. There's no evidence that Christianity was here. There was Romanism, there was Greek thoughts, and there was monotheism and, and traditional Judaism. There was no Christianity when you came to town. But in our culture, things are moving away from it. So there's still a remnant of ideas from the Bible that have shaped what you and I have grown up around. Right? Years ago, you remember, they still make movies about the, the prohibition period, the strict regulation of alcohol sales that were in this country. Why did they do that? Why did the laws of this country dig so deeply into this area of social life and formulate such strong, stringent controls? Well, because of what the Bible had to say about drunkenness and sobriety and self-indulgence. These ideas about being careful about something that could taint and pollute society were borrowed from the Bible. I mean, you know, those laws aren't around anymore. Right? I mean, you, you still got laws in place. And again, I don't know how long some of these laws will last. Still got laws in place where only adults can buy alcohol. Why not everybody? Well, because somewhere there is a morality that got borrowed from the Bible that's present in our culture. How many of you guys remember blue laws? Remember blue laws? Sunday, man, everything was like a ghost town, everything was closed. How many guys are old enough you don't remember anything being closed on a Let me see your hands real quick. You don't remember anything being closed on a Sunday. Right? I remember it was like a big deal. I think yeah, like, like there were some rare hours for like the drugstore to be open. That was, that was, and that was just a little piece of the day. You had to get there by like noon or something or it was closed. Now, you know, I think Home Depot closes early on Sunday. Is that right? You Home Depot guys? All right, this is the struggling remnant of blue. Where did blue laws come from? Why? Sunday, businesses were closed. Well, because somewhere, someone was influenced by the idea that God had created the Sabbath as a day of rest for man. And the Sabbath was celebrated on Sunday. Marriage and divorce laws were informed by Scripture. 
In our lifetime, if you're, if you're not that old, if in our lifetime, there was something introduced that didn't used to exist. It's called no-fault divorce. We can thank the Californians for that, just like most of these issues. They created no-fault divorces in 1969. Before that, you had to have an acceptable reason to divorce someone. And those acceptable reasons were framed out of ideas that were found in the scriptures. The Christian influence in our country was observable all around us. Today, you need no reason to file for divorce. You can get a divorce just because you feel like it. Your commitment to that other person, whatever agreement that you made, whatever binding element of that agreement was present, it can be undone in a moment. That's how the laws have been reshaped. Churches used to have unique status and still do in many ways, but, but be prepared. This is about to change. Churches were recognized as a means of social reform and benefit. And so special privileges were granted to churches. Churches were allowed to, to build zoning issues, right? We had to deal through some zoning issues here. Uh, but churches are allowed to build where other non-home type buildings aren't allowed to because they see the benefit of a church. Churches are allowed special tax status in this country, still are. Pastors are allowed special tax status, still are. That's in the process of changing right now. And it will not surprise me if in a few years the tax status issues for churches will change as well. And I know we're shocked by this, but but remember, this culture is moving away from these ideas. It's not moving toward them. It's moving away from them, right? The basis of our laws is drastically changing in our lifetime. Abortion laws, laws about protecting people, about protecting the unborn, used to reflect biblical values. Why protect any human being from another human being? Well, because according to scripture, each person is made in the image of God. Human beings are not plants. Human beings are not animals in the animal kingdom. They are made uniquely in the image of God. Therefore, every created human being has dignity. So laws were in place to protect the dignity of every human being, born and unborn. But evolutionary thinking has been informing our culture for quite some time. So much so that in the early 70s, the legal system began to be okay with what I call laws motivated by survival of the fittest. Why do we have abortion laws? Because the strong want to exercise their right over the weak. And according to evolution, by the way, that's not wrong. That's just how the game is played. The strong survive. The gene pool of the strong survive. The weak don't. So the strong obviously being mature adults with a growing child in them, the weak don't survive in that form of morality. Uh, Marriage, it used to reflect biblical values that were stated from the origins of creation that God created man in his own image, male and female, and then he brought them together into a unique relationship called marriage where they became one flesh, all designed by God. And then in the New Testament, we learn that this one flesh relationship and expression is God revealing something about himself to the world. 
That's what used to form the laws around marriage. Today, what forms the laws around marriage has got nothing to do with what the Bible has to say. Same-sex marriage doesn't care about whether God had a plan for marriage. Same-sex marriage doesn't care about whether the uniqueness of a male and a female coming together to express oneness as an expression of the plural God's oneness doesn't care about that. And those not caring values are showing up in the world of marriage. Right? Marriage is losing its value in our country. Right, right now, and we're studying this just to, to better understand who we're ministering to as a church. Uh, I don't know, I haven't come across the, the stats that say, actually say this, but I'd be suspicious that, that singleness is at an all-time high in this country. 43% of adults in America are single. Now, you might, you might not think that, right? You're looking around, a lot of married people. If you're over 18, 43% of adults in this country are single. Because marriage is losing its value. God, from the beginning, had created a value in marriage because it expressed the glory of God through it. But it doesn't have value anymore. It's like, why get married? You know, we'll live together for a while. People try it, get married, get divorced. People get married much later now than they ever have before. Uh, We don't need to get married to have children. In 2012, 53% of births in the year 2012, were born to single mothers. 53%. More are being born outside of marriage than are being born in marriage. Right? So clearly, clearly, there is a moral shift going on in our country, in our lifetime. There is a new morality. There is an abandoning of the old morality. And it's happening in a rapid way. And it's going to happen more. Warning. I think I put this in your outline. There's a danger of assuming that a moral culture is a Christian culture. There's a danger of assuming that a moral culture is a Christian culture. Remember, there are morals and moralism, and there is Christianity. And they are not the same. There are people who live within the constraints of a moral value system all over the world. It does not make them Christians. There are people in this country who subscribe to things that have biblical origins in their ideas. They willfully submit their life to those laws and morals. Their submitting themselves to a moral code does not make them a Christian. This was not Paul's mission. And the church had better be careful that it doesn't become the church's mission today. Because it's very tempting for it to. Listen to these thoughts. This was Donna Brazile on that same program talking about how to fix the decline of of Christians' influence and the church's influence. And she's saying the church needs to change. She said they'll have to move on more than gay marriage, right? One, One of the panelists was saying, hey, well, you know, the church is needing a new position on gay marriage. It needs to change its position. She says, well, they'll have to move on more than that. They have to move on human rights, human trafficking, climate change. There's so many issues that I think animates young people. And she went on to list several. That there is this idea that, that young people want to see certain activities take place in the culture, 
in the community. And they value that. They value seeing those things come to pass. You, you want to show me you're a Christian? Show me that in the culture. Now, biblically, I want to make this argument biblically, not because somebody in the culture is yelling at me and saying that to me. Biblically, there is some reality to that. If Christianity doesn't change the way you treat people and the value system that you have and the things that you are opposed to and bring justice to people's lives, well then, what kind of Christianity is being lived out? But it is a giant difference and a huge mistake to think that what the church needs to be defined by is social engagement and activity. That does not define the gospel. It bears witness that the gospel has been here. It does not define the gospel, right? Listen carefully because this message got preached in a church last Palm Sunday, right? So just go back, well, maybe two years ago. Yep, two years ago, Palm Sunday. This is a message from United Church of Huntsville piece of it. Some scholars might be so bold as to compare the situation in first century Israel to the economic unrest that has fueled the Occupy movement. We might even go back and look at Palm Sunday as the first demonstration in the Occupy Jerusalem campaign. Like the Wall Street protest demonstrations today, Jesus was sponsoring a largely nonviolent movement. don't know if you realize that's what he was up to. When he overturned the tables of the money changers, no one was killed or even seriously injured. I know that's, anybody been really concerned about that one? Has you've read the Bible before? This pastor obviously helping us see what's really there. Jesus was leading a nonviolent resistance campaign against the Romans and the Jewish establishment. This view of Palm Sunday may be unsettling for some people. In Sunday school, we were often taught that Jesus, meek and mild, came riding into Jerusalem on a humble donkey because he was a spiritual rather than political. Hardly. He says, this Messiah may, may have been nonviolent, but he was political. Not some otherworldly spiritual sky pilot. The blood of his covenant mentioned in Zechariah and offered by Jesus to his followers at the Last Supper was to set the captives free. Before you go saying amen, keep reading. Jesus was setting in motion a spiritual movement intended to subvert the Roman Empire. Did y'all know that? That's what the gospel was trying to accomplish. Was Jesus just a starry-eyed idealist who can be dismissed out of hand? Or is, he, or is there any hope that the Jesus movement might really succeed? Succeed at what? What if a critical mass of people embrace the nonviolent, compassionate, sharing way of Jesus? Can nonviolent revolutions actually succeed? The fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Empire, the Velvet Revolutions of Eastern Europe, the end of apartheid in South Africa, all suggest it might be possible. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a social gospel. This is an attempt to rescue man apart from a Messiah who needs to reconcile him to God. See, the, the, the point of the gospel is to deliver us to God. It's not just to deliver us from problems in this world. 
But in delivering us to God, it does deliver us from problems in this world. It's interesting that such social interest doesn't include the life of the unborn. That's interesting to me. We're so interested in that person that I can see that I want to help and make sure that we fund dollars and make ourselves available. And if the church really cares, they'd show up over there too. Well, the revolution of the gospel in a person's life gives them a sacrificial love towards others in a bunch of ways. It should. It should make us a social revolution is what the church should be. But be careful that you don't confuse the two. When I read about Paul here, when we get to the end of Paul's journey, he doesn't sound like he would preach well in one of these churches. Against the backdrop of the horrible situations that exist in the Roman Empire, Paul seems to be silent on what matters, if this is what matters. This could be a bumper sticker. If you make it into one, let me know. I want the royalties off of it. Christianity is not first about conformity. It is first about conversion. Christianity is not first about conformity. It is first about conversion. Moralism. Teaching people to behave a certain way, to have a certain value system to operate in life a certain way, to have respect for other people, to create a community. Moralism doesn't care whether you worship God. Moralism doesn't care who Jesus Christ was. It just cares about how you're going to treat that person over there. It doesn't care who Jesus Christ was. If there's one thing in the Bible that the Bible cares the most about... It is who is Jesus Christ. Well, does that mean the Bible doesn't care about people who are suffering and people's needs? It absolutely cares about those things. After it cares about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Christianity is not first about conformity. Its obligation and its role is not to try and get society to behave a certain way. To spend all of its time and energy convincing the culture to adopt rules that look like what we do from the heart. To get everybody else in the fallen world to play by our rules. And then to say Christianity is not doing well in America because we can't get people to play by our rules. Christianity's never been about getting people to play by rules. It's been about converting people. A powerful conversion of who you are. It's about Jesus standing in the face of Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Regardless of the rules around you, regardless of what you can perform on the outside, regardless of whether you're a nice guy, a legal guy, a caring guy, sensitive, social reforming guy, you must be born again. A power of the Spirit's got to come into your life and make you a different person. That gospel is the same gospel that Paul was traveling throughout the Mediterranean promoting. When he writes back to the Corinthians that he's been visiting, He talks to them about being new creations. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not the same person he was before. 
His life has been redefined. There is a spiritual presence in him that he did not have before because the alienation from God is over and God has returned to dwell in the hearts of men. Listen, the biggest problem on this planet is hearts alienated from God. It is not every social ill that you and I can paint before people. Does that mean Christians shouldn't care about social ills? No, we should. Matter of fact, when our hearts get revolutionized by a God who sends his son to die on behalf of suffering people, absolutely Christians care about social ills. And maybe, we, maybe we're negligent in that category. But, but let me just warn us, you and I are stewards over an original recipe. Christianity will, will pass through our time and it will pass on. And we will take the baton and run with it. And there are people today turning the gospel into social activism. And they sound like that message that I just had up there. Where Jesus drove into Jerusalem to occupy Jerusalem in order to overthrow a political structure so the the haves would stop mistreating the have-nots. That's a social gospel. It is not the biblical gospel. Second, final point. This may be a deliverance from an old nominal Christianity to a new normal Christianity. One of the dangers of misplacing conversion and and holding on to moral principles is that you have misplaced the thing that changes people. Introducing a new set of morals doesn't, doesn't change people. Conversion changes people. Becoming a new creation, becoming a person I wasn't. That changes people. Right? It's an interesting insight from Russell Moore. He says, I, I think that we're seeing, what we're seeing is the collapse of a cultural, nominal form of Christianity. There was a time in America where in order to be a good person or be seen as a good citizen, one had to at least nominally be a member of a church. You guys remember reading about that in history? Because you're maybe not experiencing it now, but it, historically, that was true. If you were an upstanding, important person, in America, you are a member of a church. Right? All the presidents go to church in spite of what they actually do with their lives. Because it's respectable in the American community that you're a member of some form of organized religion. Those days are over. So we're at a point now where Christianity is able to be authentic and Christianity is able to be authentically strange. I don't, know, I don't know if some of us are prepared to live in a culture where we are treated like our belief system is authentically strange. Why do you, Keith, why do you say that? Because every time the moral governments and the, the religious influence in this world gets downgraded and the laws change, Christianity's pulling its hair out and freaking out. Christianity thrived in the first century. You understand? Christianity wasn't living in a moment where it was undoing what was being in place. It was a horrible set of laws that were in place in that day. And you and I are living in a much, much better moral climate than they ever lived in. Don't freak out. We're, we're not here to raise up a moral majority. We're here to see people get converted. He says, many people, when they are able to hear what Christians believe, their response is to say, that sounds freakish to me. 
That sounds odd and that sounds strange. Well, of course it does. We believe that a previously dead man is now ruler of the universe and offers forgiveness of sins to anyone who will repent and believe. That's the same sort of reaction that happened in the Greco-Roman Empire when Christianity first emerged. Yes, it is. That's exactly right. And we're back to where we started. And maybe that's where this country is headed. Back to where Christianity started. Our hope is not in the future of America. Our hope is still in the gospel. And the gospel works as well in a pre-Christian era as it does in a post-Christian era as it does in a thriving Christian era. It's still the same. As a matter of fact, you are hard-pressed to pick up Paul's presentation of the gospel. We've just traveled with Paul. We've been hanging out with Paul for the last year and a half in this church. Traveling across the Mediterranean with him. Letting him go from place to place to place to place. <coughs> if I were to say, hey, we're about to read. Paul's going to show up in some town and he's going to speak. Tell me what he's going to say. If I were to ask you that, would you say, well, the first thing Paul would do, is he would talk about the atrocities of slavery. The first thing that he would talk about. The mistreatment of people. The way in which women were treated. He would do something about these divorce laws, which only favored men. Women couldn't even file for divorce. Um, He'd be, he'd be all over the corruption in government, for goodness sake. I mean, that'd be the first thing Paul would talk about. The huge discrepancy between the 5% in Rome and the average guy in Rome would be talked about. Yet apart from me talking about that to you today, you had no idea about most of that, did you? Did you know that 35 to 40% of the people in Italy were slaves? Did you read that in the Bible? Paul showed up in Corinth saying things like this. I I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's my message. There's one thing I'm here to clarify for you. It's who was Jesus Christ and what wants you do in response to him. Were the other things unimportant? I, I think they had a place of importance. But they were not the key things. Tim Chester a book called Everyday Church says, much of the decline in the church in the West has been the falling off of nominal Christians. As a result, what remains may be more healthy. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up here. Let's stand up together. Let's invite God's presence and help to receive what he's given us in this word. Lord, as we open this time together and we opened your word and we prayed and we asked, Lord, that your word would open us. Lord, if we are closed to your word, Lord, these moments lose their importance and their significance. Lord, would you open us to your word? Lord, would you set us before your word that we need this word? And Lord, help us find the places individually where we need this word today in our lives. I just want you to just be listening for the spirit of God. God is here in our midst. He gathers with us. He loves Sunday mornings. He loves the fellowship of his people. He loves gathering with us by the Spirit to care for our souls, to strengthen us, to correct, to 
to redirect us, to release and free us from wrong ideas, to set his word in our lives. So he is here by the spirit to do that. I would have a great concern. Maybe you're here this morning and the question for you is this. Are you a moral person or have you been powerfully born again? Are you a moral person, person with high values, behavior that avoids a list of sins that are common in this world, carefulness in where you go and what you say, how you live. You're part of religion. You go to church. You do what good people do. Are you a moral person or or have you been powerfully born again? They're not necessarily the same. I believe it's true that moralism produces nominalism because it lacks power. It lacks motivation. It thrusts into your life a list of do's and don'ts and requirements. It creates social pressure for you to do things on the outside that you may not even agree with, don't have a heart to do it. Your life becomes full of activity that's not about worship. It's not about affection for God. It's not about delight in Him. It's just about moral duty. It's just about doing what's expected. It's about what doing what keeps you in the good club. But see, there's coming a day when that moralism will introduce Christianity to nominalism. Because that Christianity will never take the gospel to the end of the world. That Christianity won't even sacrifice to love the difficult and the unlovable. It won't reach beyond the people that are just like me. Same class, same race, same social background. It won't take its hard-earned money and invest it in invisible places for the sake of a kingdom that will never end, that's not of this world. It will never do that. And it will hide itself in Christianity. And Christianity will become nominal. Moralism is a means of nominalism. What God was after was true conversion. Changing you. Making you a different person. Embedding in you the living spirit of God in a way that would turn your world upside down. And redefine who you are and give you new motives and new courage to do things that you would have never done on your own. Convictions about things that matter to God, whether they matter to this culture or the people around you at all. They matter to God, therefore they matter to you. We ought to put a warning sign over the church door. That warning ought to be directed towards people who have been in church a long time. It ought to light up every time a a child walks past it. 
Because if you grew up in church, you caught moralism faster than you caught the gospel. You caught that if you did the right things, you got spoken well of. People felt a certain way about you. Your parents rewarded you. They felt a certain way about you. And if you did the wrong thing, people frowned upon you. And and they made you feel like that was wrong. And so some mechanism got created in your heart that said, let me make sure I do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. And do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. And then the people that matter to you, they're people who go to church. So you joined the church club. And you went to church because those are the people that you want to be accepted by. And you want to be around them. You don't want to be ostracized. And you're not eager to have some Wall Street or Hollywood lifestyle because the people you trust are in this room. And what I just described can all be lived out without being converted. You can be a young person who grew up in a moral environment and you're not converted. If your life has taken on nominal Christianity, if it lacks conviction, it lacks a sense of eagerness, it lacks something inside of you that launches you toward living a life that you want to live, that sometimes doesn't even make sense that you're doing this, that you're sacrificing, that you're doing things you're uncomfortable with, that you're stepping out in faith toward people in a way that you don't know if you can do this. You don't know if you can afford to do this. I don't know if I've got the time to do it. I don't even like that person. But nothing launches you that way. You may be a moral person, but you may not be a converted person. Conversion is a radical thing. Conversion is a wild, amazing thing when it goes off in your life. So can I, I pray for us because I believe this is the future of Christian churches. Discovering whether, it, whether their Christianity was moralism or whether it was conversion. It's the days ahead in the church world. People discovering, was I a moral person or did I get born again by the Spirit of God in my life. So I just pray for us this morning be aware of that. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, would you help us this morning? Be aware. Be aware in our hearts. Well, what kind of an encounter have we had with you? Am I just a decent person with church lingo? My morality is living in the neighborhood of things like Bibles and church activity and church attendance and church people and my family. When the Apostle Paul comes to town and he presents this gospel, he says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. There is a new day and it's a powerful day is born by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in the heart to will and to do of God's good pleasure and it's His good pleasure to do God's good pleasure. Or maybe this morning there are folks here who are not convinced that their experience in you is to be 
born of the Spirit. They have not been born of the Spirit. Or they're concerned that they've not been born of the Spirit. Lord, this morning, would you give grace right now, right now in this meeting to make this different, to make it right, to make a morning like no other morning has ever existed in the hearts of some folks here today. Lord, I pray right now that there are folks being convicted in their heart, that they're not, they're not sure whether the dwelling presence of God is in them, whether they have received the power of the Holy Spirit to give new motivations, new desires, conviction and awareness of sin and correction in their life. They're not aware that that's taking place. They don't feel like that's real to them. Lord, this morning, would you make that difference for them? Would you bring a new day, Lord? Would you bring the gospel into their lives today? I want to ask you a hard question. If you're here this morning, I just described you. I want to, I want to have some folks pray for you. And I want to ask you to come receive prayer. Right, so regardless of, of whether you, I'm an upstanding Christian person. Well, if you're not sure that the Spirit of God lives in you and animates your life, well, then don't, don't take another step in the moral world. Get that right. Get it right this morning. Get it right right now. You're a young person. You're not sure about that. That's understandable. I condemn anybody because you were raised in a Christian environment. I thank God that you were. But it's not enough. God wants something much bigger than that. So let me ask you just to have some courage where you are right now. And just, just come forward and have somebody come pray with you in just a moment. Because that's where you are this morning. And God can change that. Come on. Sensing God this morning. One step full of guts leads to a bunch of steps full of guts. If you're going to live for the glory of God, the Christian life, it is not going to be an easy life. And if you're hesitating right now, maybe God's just introducing you to the rest of your life is going to feel like a moment of hesitating. That's what it's going to feel like followed by a step of obedience. So listen, if you've been living without that sense of launching impulse in your heart, listen, come forward and ask God for a refund. Can I tell you, that's, that's not a good version of Christianity to be walking around in. I thank God for the day that he showed up in my life and suddenly I wanted to do things that I never wanted to do before. I wanted to stop doing things that I'd always wanted to do. And it wasn't because of social pressure. It's because God was going off on the inside of me. So don't miss this opportunity. I need some folks to come pray for these guys that are coming forward. Don't miss the opportunity to move from your best efforts to live a system of beliefs and rules and instead to encounter the power of God to redefine who you are, rescue you from anything that's nominal in this life. Anybody else? Anybody else?
Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for moments like these where you set something that feels black and white in front of us, something that is life-defining, something that touches the realities of our lives. Lord, thank you that you are a reality. Thank you that the presence and work of your Spirit is a reality. Thank you, Lord, that this is not a life that we're called to live on human effort. Lord, what the Apostle Paul went from place to place to place to deliver, one journey after another in dangerous situations where a hostile culture rose up against him over and over and over again, was to introduce people to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Come back from the grave with power in the resurrection to give you life by the Holy Spirit. Lord, that was his message. Lord, that is our message. It's still our message today. Lord, it's the message that changes our lives. So Lord, we welcome this morning you settling these issues for us today. Make it clear in our hearts. Lord, I pray not a person walks out that door. Maybe there's some who just felt hesitant to come forward for whatever reason, Lord. Lord, make it clear. Lord, I pray to be haunted by the reality of whether or not this is true in my heart. Lord, I pray I couldn't lay my head on the pillow tonight if I've been living a moral life but not a converted life. If I've been adopting ideas rather having been adopted by you and indwelt by the Spirit. Lord, would you go with us today? Would you mess with us today? Would you fix this in us today? America doesn't need any more nominal Christians. Lord, what this post-Christian world needs is Apostle Paul-like men and women birthed by the Spirit, living gloriously to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it true in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.